afternoon. Um, I think you were all here last week when uh, I, I sort of started chairing these seminars. If there's anybody who wasn't, very briefly, I'm Richard Sandrick. I'm Professor of Journalism at Cardiff University and a uh, Senior Research Fellow here at the Reuters uh, Institute. Uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce our guest this afternoon, Jackie Barr from BBC News Labs, interactive journalist, but previously she was interactive editor at the New York Times. I, I was an editor yeah. in the interactive industry. Editors, journalists, you know, presidents, they're all different titles. <laughs> Mixed around a lot. Anyway, um, but she is uh, someone who's got a lot of experience of data journalism, of innovative ways of uh, storytelling and reporting. Uh, that's very much what we're going to be getting into this afternoon. Um, she says she's happy for it to be on the record if you want to tweet or blog about it, but it's her personal views, not those of the BBC or, uh, or any other employer. So there we are. Jackie, it's great to have you here. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. Off you go. Great. Uh, thank you. First, I, I just want to start by thanking, um, thanking you for having me here, and thank you all for coming. Um, it's an honor to be speaking. So today, I'd like to discuss how different approaches to reporting can result in a better experience, both for our audience and for, and for us as journalists. But first, what, what do I mean by a different approach to reporting? Different means going beyond the typical headline and byline and copy of the newspaper model, which we've so often seen transferred almost directly to online. I mean, having more of a structure to our stories than the, the typical old inverted pyramid uh, story structure. Or the nightly news, right, that is you know, broadcast at particular times of day and then maybe thrown into the archive. I believe that as journalists, um, whatever our backgrounds, we can do a better job. As journalists, we make our livings understanding the key um, people and places and organizations involved in the events that we report on. We understand what their relationship is to each other. We understand that a person is a member of some organization and has been with a particular title for a certain amount of time. And we understand that these things change as well over time. Unfortunately, what happens is all of that nuanced in information is lost when we either hit publish or we air the report on TV or the radio. Frankly, we have the technology, we have better technology today than we've ever had before, right? It's always improving. We, there are ways that we can retain the nuance of information that journalists know that is contained in all of our newsrooms. And I'd like to talk about how. So yeah, we have the technology, but this is not the sort of technology I'm talking about, right? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the show community, um, but it throw back to Robocop, of course. Um, the tools that exist today to make web or mobile applications are far more sophisticated than they have ever been. I started working with technology in 1995, and back then, Java was the, the hot programming language, and everyone thought it was going to make everything so much easier. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Java, for instance, uh, might, might be familiar with the idea that it was a language you could write once and run it anywhere. And what we've seen is that hasn't really happened with Java, but in the meantime, so many other um, frameworks and tools have emerged to make the process of creating content online, whether that's mobile or for the web, um, much easier. Uh, developers even talk about how 
how they code for happiness at, at conferences. It's true. We're able to achieve a lot with far less than ever before. Um, we don't even have to have a server room with the special like temperature control and air conditioning because of the cloud. And I'm sure everyone here has heard of the cloud. Well, some will joke that the media industry is, is afraid of change, of innovation, that they're resistant to it. I, I disagree. I, th I think if you look over the history of, of media, of doing the news, You'll, you'll see that there has always been change. Um, people talk about data journalism as if it's a new thing. In some regards, there are new, new approaches being done to presenting massive amounts of data, big data, as people will often talk about. But journalists have always worked with data to some degree. Over time, the newspaper industry, for instance, has had to cope and adapt to changes in almost every aspect of the business. From the way the, the newspaper is printed, uh, you see here, 1893, the New York Recorder installed color presses. I'd like to point out that that's 100 years before the newspaper I worked at previously, <laughs> the New York Times, saw fit to do it. Um, uh, but you know, in 74, the IHT began um, using faxes to uh, file stories. So the newspaper industry alone has, has had to change. Um, to be able to broadcast the, the news and its drama programs um, on radio and television, the BBC has historically had to, um, had to almost create the, the new equipment to do this job. Uh, BBC's R&D group, which is a, a, a wonderful resource the BBC has, very lucky, um, is a massive group and they have been evolved from almost the very beginning of the corporation's history. We've seen lots of radical change in almost every aspect of the business, except in one area in particular, the process of doing the reporting, of doing the investigation, of actually getting the story out to people. I like this quote here because he touches exactly on that. The very reporting process that produces information has been deprived of much needed innovation. So let's talk about the CMS. Almost every person I know who works in media, whether they're a hack, hacker type, interactive news, computer-assisted reporter, uh, one of my favorite terms, um, or one of my least favorite terms, the traditional reporter, um, a term I hope goes away, almost all of them hate their CMS that they have to work with. They're clunky, they're, they're not they're not even pleasant to use, they're a chore, right? This is a screenshot of a CMS at the BBC. It's called CPS for Content Production System. And just look at that. It only runs in Windows. Um, it has so many things to click on. <laughs> like, where do you even begin? Um, but still, if, with all of, those, all of those buttons, you still just have one big text area for the story. Unstructured text. You even put images in there or videos. No, no one likes using this tool. CMSs are often geared towards publishing for one platform. In some cases, that's print. In other cases, that's doing um, broadcast media. They're a pain to use. I have a Mac. I can't even run that CMS on my Mac without emulating Windows. So I don't, I don't interact with it very often either. 
But I think it's fixable. UX might have forgotten the CMS, but I think we can change. User experience. <laughs> oh, sorry, that, that's user experience, yes. Um, some organizations have already rolled out updates to their content management systems. This is a view of NPR's content management system. <laughs> While it's not exactly pretty, um, UX should probably get on that. <laughs> um, it's, it's showing something revolutionary. It's showing that instead of having one big blob of unstructured text, they're chunkifying the, the information. It's, the result is that you have authors, journalists, creating structured data. So I'd like to show some other, some more recent efforts that have come about. Uh, so this, this is a view of a project called Structured Stories. Structured Stories is a result of a collaboration between David Caswell, a computer scientist who used to work at Yahoo in their, in their news department, um, and Bill Adair. Bill Adair, um, I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He's a award-winning journalist, uh, creator of the PolitiFact website, um, often touted as a very successful uh, endeavor into using structured data for journalism. David Caswell was at Yahoo working on, their, on bettering their recommendation system when he realized it's, it's so unfortunate that all of this information about the people and the places, organizations involved in the news all of the, just even pulling out a list of the important events that have happened was made so much more difficult by the lack of structure. So their approach is interesting. They've just concluded an experiment in reporting with data. And as you can see here, this is a view of what in their, in their view is a structured approach to reporting. So what happens is the reporter starts with picking out the verb of what happened, the action. They then say who acted, the character in the first one, Ed Rays, <clears throat> and then what they did. They just completed this experiment uh, with, I think, three or four graduate level uh, journalism students in New York covering City Hall and several other beats. And they, they released a paper, which I would encourage you to check out if you're interested in, in, in this, but, and I assume you are since you're here. Um, what ended up happening was the, the students started out by attending press conferences and you know, walking the beat and such. But this was so cumbersome that it took them so long to actually do the reporting that they start, stopped leaving the office and they started doing the reporting um, just by, like, basically searching the internet to see what was happening. So we need to come up with tools that are easier to use, that don't hinder our, that don't hinder the main job of the journalist. So a project that the New York Times Labs uh, recently wrote about, you might have seen it, it's called The Editor. And this, this is a, a, an approach that is endeavoring to not add a lot of extra work to the journalist. It's, it's a big text area, which I know I pointed out in the CPS, BB, the BBC CMS before. But what this editor is doing is, as you type, or perhaps later on, so, so it's not getting in your way, it's looking for important or key people and places, events, even tries to do quote detection, so that you don't have to then have an extra process of going through and adding that and tagging the article. 
we, we, we tried a few different things with this. We tried having a separate process that could be done by the copy editor, or perhaps in the verification process of the story by your editor. Um, we also tried just doing it live. And we found that doing it live was a, a bit distracting, right? All these colors covering up your text. Uh, but what that editor is trying to do, all those highlighted um, terms in the text, we typically refer to that as tags. So I, I'd like to talk just for a little bit about tagging. I, it, it will get more interesting in a bit, but we should start with tagging. Uh, tagging, the process of assigning topics to a piece of content, whether it's article or video or radio, um, it, it's usually just pointing out the people, places, organizations, uh, themes, and events in, in the content. At the BBC, some of our earlier explorations into tagging um, came out of R&D and the news labs, which I'm a part of. The early experiments into tagging led to the, the, uh, the development of what the BBC calls the linked data platform. It's a robust system that can store not just the label of the tag, like the name of the person. Here is an article that's about Edward Snowden. It also stores the, the verb, um, what in linked data world is referred to as a triple, because it's three parts. The first part, the subject, is the article, the piece of content. The second is a verb. This is kind of similar to what Structured Stories is trying to do, only they're doing it in a, a bit of a more manual process. Um, so here we see this article is about Edward Snowden and it mentions Russia. At the BBC, all of this tagging work is done by, by journalists who write for our online. It's not just an internal tool though in use within the newsroom, it's also a public facing platform. This here is, is the public facing platform called Things, and it is, well, made up of things. Uh, it's all of the uh, people and places and organizations that we tag our content with. Now, why would you want to do that? Why, why did we release that to the public? Well, it's to, help it's to help us understand that when we report on David Cameron and another organization reports on David Cameron, we're talking about the same person. There's a concept of associating uh, different entities, which is the term linked data people tend to use for people, places, organizations, and I'd like to try using that here myself because listing that all out is a little bit cumbersome. Um, it's, a, it's a way of ensuring that these are all referring to the same thing. So the, the concept of the BBC's tag, David Cameron, is the same as the, the New York Times's tag, David Cameron. So I've talked a lot about the process of actually creating the tags. I've shown you a text editor that does it. There are, are other uh, ways of doing it. But what can you do? Why would you want to do that? Why, why are you doing all of this extra work? Well, there are lots of things you can do. You can, you can see like, what are the most recent events that have been trending? And significantly, how much coverage have each of them gotten? But what if you wanted to get a view of that across the media industry? It's problematic because not everyone is assigning tags. And when they do, they don't always open that data up to the public. And even when they do that, they don't always um, attribute like what like the same as sort of concept to them. So you can you might be able to get tags, but you don't necessarily know that they're always referring to the same thing. 
the news labs um, approached this problem and they thought about what could we do? So they, what we ended up doing was we built a platform called the News Juicer. Um, if anyone has a better name for what I'm about to describe, please let me know. <laughs> um, but what the juicer does is it crawls hundreds of media sources online. I think we're close to 1,000 now. And what it does is it, it pulls in the text and it uses software that does entity extraction. What that means is it, it detects, kind of like the text editor from the New York Times I showed you before, it, tr it detects the key people, places, organizations, and such, the entities, in, in text. So here we see some very pretty recent results from uh, searching for Prime Minister Tony Abbott. And what it's doing is it's searching through all of those sources. We have various options to filter that information and it pulls out the entities that it can find in an automated way, which is not always, which is not perfect by far, but there's no way that we would be able to get this sort of information by using you know, humans, journalists, and editors, right? Most importantly, though, about this platform, it makes all of this information available in a series of APIs. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, the labs made this platform, and they have a bunch of APIs, and they gave it a weird name, so what? The thing about uh, having all of, all of that nuanced information at that scale is that it lets you build things like this. Uh, this is one of my favorite prototypes that uh, we've created in the news labs. It's called Who's Talking About What, or What for short. And what this is showing is how coverage has changed over time for the things you're looking at. And this is publicly available. So here I, I've done a query for Syria or Iraq, and then combined with the various ways we have referred to the Islamic State or ISIL or ISIS. And here you can see that the coverage has changed. At the beginning of the chart, which is January of this year, there was a spike in, on France 24's coverage, right? And that might be related to you know, the Charlie Hebdo. I, but it's an interesting tool because it gives you a broader view of what the media is reporting on. It also tries to pull out what, what are the other terms that they've been reporting on when they've been reporting on the Islamic State. So you can see some report on jihadism, some report on militants or Turkey, and it could be, it's interesting to, to try to figure out why is that? Why, why do some report in combinations like this? We've also built a series of more visual applications. This is the news map, and we typically have this on a, a big display. It's also available on the URL there. And what the news map does is it has it has a globe, and as the globe turns, it will zoom in on a particular country, and it will interact with the juicer APIs to pull out recent coverage related to that country. It also tries to pull out some photos to make it a little more of a compelling experience for people to watch. So that's, that works for linking news articles to the people and the organizations that are involved in the events being reported on. But news is more than that. News is meant to explain the events in the world and explain them in terms of a narrative. How the people that we are reporting on are involved in these stories. Not just that this story is about a person, but 
what exactly is their involvement in the events at hand? So now would be a good time to talk about a concept called Storylines. Storylines was a result of a collaboration between the BBC, The Guardian, and the Press Association. You can think of storylines kind of similarly to tags, just like you can have a tag that's about, that, that's saying this is a person, you can also have a tag saying that this is a story and this is an event. We use the term storylines, which is a little, I find it a little strange referring to it as a storyline, but uh, we use that to disambiguate it from the more general term story, right? But you can just think of it as the narrative that links related coverage together. So if we go back to that sample article I showed before that said it was about Edward Snowden and it mentioned Russia, with a storyline, you, you can actually have more information about what that article signifies. The article was saying that he had left the airport. It's an update to a broader story that in this case was called US spy scandal. And it is still about Edward Snowden and still references Russia and specifically Moscow. But now we have a lot more of a nuanced information about that piece. What does that let us do? Well, that, that enables us to tie together our coverage in a way that makes more sense. We can pull in our videos, our explainers. We can have photo galleries. We can tie in all of our reporting. And we can present it then to our audience as part of a narrative story we have a more meaningful idea of what we're reporting on. So the model, though, of you know, modeling data in a way that's reusable and flexible enough to represent any news event turned out to be pretty difficult. This was an early iteration of what, what a storyline was composed of. This is the version that was shopped around the newsroom. You might not be surprised that it wasn't too, wasn't too popular. I mean, that's incredibly complicated and still can't even represent all of the different things that we report on. So, yeah. So um, a couple days ago, I was uh, speaking with my colleague, Jeremy Tarling. Um, Jeremy was one of the main architects of the whole model of a storyline. I, I told him that I'd, I'd be coming here to speak with you. And I asked him if he, if he had any lessons learned that I could share to this approach. And the big lesson for him was that they didn't involve the newsroom from the beginning. There, were, there wasn't really much collaboration. We're looking at uh, resurrecting this idea of having a structured approach to narratives, um, but we're doing it differently this time. We're doing it with the journalists who report online, on television, radio, as a collaborator. We're doing it so that while at each step along the way, we might not have the perfect model of what a story is, um, at least for a, someone like a data architect or some linked data specialist, they might not agree. But we'll be able to actually work with the model. It won't have all of the, I can get that back. It won't have all of these crazy things that you have to specify. So that's all about the process of creating those tags. But what, like, if you had um, a structured approach to storytelling, what does that enable you to do? So hopefully my internet is working okay. I could show you. This is a prototype of, of, of how we can use the storyline data 
in different ways. So this is all pulled out of our existing coverage that looked nothing like this. This is trying to explain the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring is an is a very, you know it's a complex topic. It ha it involves many countries and different countries at different <clears throat> points in time. So sorry, Jackie, is this one public? This URL? Uh, oh, it it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I can I can send the URL for this. Right. Um, so. It was created in only a couple of days, so it doesn't have every single event in it, but it has quite a few, and it shows that you can make a more compelling, you know, it's possible to make a more compelling and almost cinematic uh, rendering of your more traditional online reporting. So, so far what I've been showing you are examples of things that you can do differently with reporting on the web. But, you know, digital storytelling it involves far more than the web. There's more to it. First and foremost, there's mobile, of course. And as my friend Brian Boyer likes to say, if it doesn't work on mobile, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm sure we've all experienced something like this. You try to load up a story that someone's talking about, and you get it on your phone, and it just doesn't work. There, there's been a, a lot of attention uh, paid to developing your website so that they work um, on the mobile web. But what else is there? What other opportunities are there? Uh, well, there are really interesting uh, avenues of getting your content, getting your news into places that it might be blocked, whether it's censored or, or otherwise. We've looked at using apps such as WeChat to get our content into places like China. We're also experimenting with a chat messaging platform called Telegram. Telegram. Um, this is a screenshot of a prototype that I've been working on with the World Service. Uh, Telegram is a mostly open source encrypted uh, chat messaging platform that happens to be the most popular app download in Uzbekistan. Uh, it says random person because it's just um, something I'm actually, actually developing right now. Um, so what, what this allows us to do is Get, get, for instance, like the latest headlines from our Uzbek service and get them to the people who want to read them, who otherwise have difficulty. Messaging apps are also interesting as fast or low bandwidth avenues of distri distributing content in the public service, like we did in West Africa during the Ebola crisis. This is a screenshot from the BBC's Ebola service that was run on the WhatsApp uh, messaging platform. However, there are so many different platforms, um, even alone in the chat messaging world, right? How do you actually scale to that? How do you get your content that is on, say, your website or on television? How do you get that into all of those different platforms? How do you have, like, the traditional um, approach, I think, has been hiring more journalists. But as we all know, the industry is facing many challenges right now. So you can't necessarily just throw more journalists at it. So that brings me back to a quote I shared earlier. What we need is a way to distribute and redistribute the information already in our newsrooms and to do that at scale. <coughs> we need to innovate the production of news reporting. Again, current appro approaches, throwing more journalists at it. Uh, so with the industry in the state that it is, um, it leaves us to have to do more with less. I hear that all the time at the BBC, especially. 
What about computers, though? Like, if we can have more people, maybe we could go back to that notion of computer-assisted reporting. So how could, how, how could computer-assisted reporting help us? Um, where are the inefficiencies? I thought it might make sense now to like, look at how a breaking news event is typically covered. So a push notification is often sent out going to people's device going to people's mobile phones and showing up on our website, a very short bit of information that, that lets our audience know that something has happened. An article shell page uh, with very basic, probably the same information that was included in the push notification is created on our website. And as information becomes clear and we verify our sources, we'll fill in more information on, on that article page. We'll write several articles, um, we'll probably you know, tweet about it, we'll it, you know, go on to other social networking sites and post <coughs> updates. And of course, everyone loves a live blog, right? That, that short list of updates, in, usually in reverse chronological order, that, um, that sometimes will link to our, more f our fuller articles, um, sometimes not. We'll, we'll create analysis pieces. We'll, if, if, if the organization has enough resources, interactives will, might get made. Now, if you're a news junkie like myself, and I'm guessing many of you are, um, you're, probably, you're likely to be following all of these updates as they're happening. But if you're not, and you check in to see, the, see what's going on in the world after you get home from work, let's say, or on lunchtime, and you come in the middle of a live blog, and it's, it's hard to make sense of what's going on, right? Uh, Wolfgang Blau, who up until very recently was the head of strategy at The Guardian, has, has a really good term for this. He calls it the Wikipedia gap. What happens midway through, or days or weeks after the live coverage of an event? This is from a piece he wrote on Medium called Good Questions Trigger Conversations that I, it's, it's fascinating. He makes a lot of really good points in it. So usually the pieces are left in their final state. Here's a screenshot of a live blog about the, the crash of flight MH17 from the BBC. Who are we serving with this format? This was last updated, I, I think it was July 2014. And I was just trying to find out what is the current situation with MH17. It's putting a lot of, we're putting a lot of the onus of understanding complicated events onto our audience. The very people we're supposed to be serving. Plus, it's making reporters churn out the same content over and over. At a time when the industry is suffering with layoffs, budget cuts, organizations even sadly shutting down entirely, we, we absolutely must innovate. Our reporters want to do the best journalism. Our readers want to understand what's important. And we want to do that in a way that can accommodate different, different levels of understanding. So how do we, in media, do this for the public, and how do we do it at scale? Well, this is a recent ex endeavor by the Washington Post um, that they're calling their knowledge map. And what they're doing with the knowledge map is they're having the journalist who's working on the story write a small, small chunks of information that they're referring to as supplements. And with those supplements, they can provide more context in the article. So here, what we're seeing is, I've clicked on what is the Islamic State, and it has replaced a sidebar that would typically have you know, 
links to other stories that we're doing, um, and it just replaces that with contextual information. So as I'm reading the story, I don't have to you know, go to a completely separate page. I don't have to read yet another article. I can just get the relevant bits of information um, that, I, that I need. And it's flexible as well because you don't have to click on all of the links, right? If you don't want to, you'll click if you just want to learn a little bit more. The BBC um, is also looking at it. This is a, a very admittedly rough draft of how we can contextualize our coverage. Here, this is a piece about the EU referendum. And we, of course, wouldn't go, go uh, forward with pulling in Wikipedia data, but just as a working prototype um, to get something quickly off the ground that we can then sh show our, our newsroom, we can just pull it in quickly. And we can learn from previous attempts at addressing this problem. Um, most of them have been made by people outside of the news industry, uh, data scientists um, for the most part. This is an attempt by the former, yeah, by the co-founder of Wikipedia uh, called InfoBit. And their approach was to crowdsource it. Um, unfortunately for them, uh, they, didn't, they didn't make a platform that, that was robust enough to handle the, the swell of interest. So, they ran out of money and they shut down. However, before you dismiss that, I want to pull up a piece of that quote from Larry Sanger. No media outlet has the motive or the ability to come to grips with everything. I disagree. <laughs> uh, first, I don't think we have to come to grips with everything immediately or possibly ever. We, don't, we definitely ha have the motive. I can, I can think of several places that I've worked that would love to have this flexibility, this living resource of knowledge that we can leverage in our, all of our coverage. And I, can also, and I can think of one organization in particular that has the motive and the ability, you could even say the mission. <laughs> now before you think I'm being exceptionalist about the place that I work, um, it literally is the mission of the BBC to enrich people's lives with programs and services that inform, educate, and entertain. And at a time when the BBC is struggling to renew its charter and get funding, it makes sense to prove that it can innovate where others can't. Specifically, the first public purpose of the BBC um, is to provide in, an in-depth explanation to support citizenship around a serious news agenda. In-depth, multi-platform to help people make sense of the world. It's absolutely essential that we know our audience as well. So a different kind of data, how, how, we, how we can track and understand how our audience, our readers, our viewers are interacting with our, our news coverage or not. What terms are unfamiliar to our audience? What, what, what can we do to explain things that people don't understand? And it's not just our own data on how people are interacting with our, our online content. We can also look to things like Google Trends, which tracks the most, most searched for questions. Because after all, if you, you not just have to have a desire to keep up with the news, you also have to know the, the events that have led to how we got to here. You have to understand the long-standing facts that are part of our news coverage. We're hopeful that using a more structured approach to our reporting with data will help us do a better service. 
We're hoping it will help us be more efficient. Maybe one day we can even nix the entire idea of having an archive. Instead, we'll have an ever an ever-changing, up-to-date, leverageable, reusable resource of all of the knowledge in our newsrooms. Thank you.